invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans and chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. And I want to uh, read the first seven verses. We're going to focus our attention uh, preeminently upon the first three uh, verses. This is the kind of tax that uh, perhaps at first sight, uh, it, it's uh, certainly it's, it's practical in certain ways. It's obscure in certain ways because it's addressing issues that maybe we don't think that we are facing. But this is the kind of tax that does, when we understand it rightly, bring together some of the most important truths of God's word in regard to uh, living well before him. Verse 1 says, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who does not observe it to the Lord, he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would grant to us help and aid by the Spirit of God to know and to understand and to walk in light of revealed truth And Father, also to walk in the light of experienced grace and mercy. Uh, Help us, Father, to think rightly and to esteem one another in accordance with your revealed truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have the gift of sight, if you are able to see, it does not necessarily stand that you are able to see well. There are people who are able to see, but their uh, sight is distorted in in one way or another. So I look out and uh, some of you perhaps have contacts and a number of you have glasses uh, that you wear in order to correct uh, something that is wrong with your vision. And if you did not have those contacts, if you did not have uh, those glasses, you would not be able to enter into life Uh, confidently. Some of you would not be able to drive. Some of you would not be able to recognize things that you need to be able to recognize. Uh, Certain things, whether if you can't see if they're too far away, certain things you can't see if they are too close. Others, there is a blurriness. Some uh, even need to undergo surgery to have certain things removed to the eyes or uh, whatever is done with laser surgery in order to be able to see rightly. Now, the fact that you are a Christian, that you are in Christ, does not in and of itself necessarily mean that you know everything, uh, that you're able to live your life exactly as God intends. God gives to us a host of exhortations and rebukes in order that our thinking, our, our spiritual vision would be sharpened. And I'm going to submit to you that there are three main perspectives or three main matters of vision which will guide everything in our Christian life. Our thoughts, our actions, and our attitudes are dependent upon seeing three things clearly and accurately. The first is that we need to see God accurately. The second thing is that we need to see ourselves accurately. And the third is we need to see others both in the church and outside the church as God intends. Now, I want to begin just very quickly, and all of these things are in our text here today. Who we think or know God to be is the most fundamental thing. Our children's catechism asks the question, what do the scriptures principally teach? 
And the answer to that is, and I, I'm going to find, I think it's lacking, and I'm going to be bold to rewrite it here. But the answer to that question is who God is and what he requires of us. And so some would say, well, what's the Bible about? It's about who God is and what God wants us to do. I think what's missing there is what God has done. Who God is, what God has done, preeminently what God has done for us in Christ, and then what he requires of us is the bulk of what the Bible is all about. And what God requires of us is rooted in who he is and what he has done. The commandments of God, uh, the, the uh, commands that God gives do not hang out there in space. They are rooted in God's character and in God's action. The second perspective is in regard to ourselves. And the Bible tells us, it commands us, that we are to think soberly about ourselves, not to have a distorted view of ourselves. Uh, if you had a, a funhouse mirror, you know what a funhouse mirror is, one of those wavy mirrors, uh, and depending on the way it's put together and how tall you are, it distorts you in a variety of ways. I don't think many of you ladies would want to put on your makeup in front of a funhouse mirror. Or to determine what your clothes look like when everything is distorted. An overinflated view of self or a view of self that does not understand God's heart towards you, God's love for you, God's grace toward you will lead to an experience that is unbiblical and that is not in keeping with God's work of grace. The third perspective that we need to have, the third way we need to think and to see is how we view others. And this is something that is so crucial. And again, I'm not going to say that this is the only time in church history, uh, but we certainly live at a time in church history where this is particularly uh, in front of us. Uh, and what so often we sang tonight, how beautiful the sight of brethren who agree. But too often what we see today is that the interaction of brethren is highlighted by enmity and anger, hostility and division. And people are easily pigeonholed and, and viewed simplistically and very often on the basis of one or two things, a person on one side or the other can be depersonalized and easily demonized. And if social media is indicative of anything regarding the state of modern evangelicalism, even or maybe even especially of the reformed stripe, it is the drawing up of sides and assigning enemy status toward others. So how am I to view others? What am I to think when somebody disagrees with me? And I used to say, if somebody disagrees with me, and I, I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, I don't really mean this, but my joke was always, if somebody disagrees with me, I have two questions I have to determine. Are they stupid or immoral? You know, uh, Because how else could they disagree with me? How do I view people who disagree with me? How should my theology of who God is and what God has done affect how I view theological, in some cases moral, in some cases philosophical or political opponents. So that I can glorify God. Because what is our chief goal in life? It's to bring God glory in everything that we do, is it not? We want to honor God. We want to glorify the God of the Bible in view of who he is what he has done, and what he has revealed. Now, to the point of the text here before us, in Romans chapter 14, what do I do in a church where not everyone is on the same page? And if, if you don't know what kind of church I'm talking about, I'm talking about you know, like a church like our own. Now, there was a day when we were smaller, and it was far easier to be a bit more united, but even then, when I came here, 33 years ago, there were already some of these kinds of issues that were facing the 10 people that I came to minister to back in 1990, and some of you will remember what some of those things were. I'll touch on a few of them today. The section of the book of Romans, where we are in the book, is rooted, beginning in chapter 12, you recall, 
where Paul is begging us, beseeching us to live our lives in the light of these mercies of God. And if you want to describe in some way what's what's chapter 1 through chapter 10 about in the book of Romans, it's about the unfathomable mercy and the sovereign grace of God. And if you miss in, in that first section of Romans how spectacular it is that God would love a rebel people, a people that had despised his commandments and give to them the gift of his son, and that his son would provide for them a full and free righteousness that they would receive by faith, and that they are secure in that faith, and how God works that out over the span of history. He says, now, all right, that's our theology lesson. Now we're going to ask the question, so what? What does that mean for how I am to live my life? Well, he says, you got to live your life in light of those mercies. If you don't understand that God loves you, is gracious towards you, and been merciful towards you, it will distort how you view God, how you view yourself, and certainly how you view others. Now, I could argue that in the first 10 chapters, or first 11 chapters, rather, I should have said, that there is a major focus on how we view God and how we understand ourselves. And Paul says, all right, now I want to talk to you about how you view each other. I want to talk about how to live together in light of the mercies of God. And it could be argued that pastorally speaking... Because Paul doesn't just start free-forming and, and writing here. He's got a purpose in mind. He has a church in mind, a people in mind. That this is really where the book has been leading. And it can be argued that all that has come before, especially, again, these grand doctrines associated with how a sinner is justified, is in service to this great fundamental problem that the church was facing at this time in its history. The apostle has dealt with this issue and begun to and then he pulled back and there was a larger view of life in a in light of God's mercy in a fallen world and government and the pursuit of holiness but now he gets back to life in the body especially a body in which there are divisions regarding of the proper understanding and application of what the inclusion of the gentiles means for the life of the church Now, that's not the kind of thing that many of us think a whole lot about anymore. If I were to say to you, what are the great issues facing the church right now? How many of you say, brother, it's the inclusion of the Gentiles. But go back in time, some 2,000 years ago, and this issue dominated the way whatever you would have readily said today Whatever would have been upon your heart, whatever as you understand society at this time and the response of the church, you would have said, brother, it's this. Well, then this was it. This was one of the major issues, if not the major issue, facing the life of many of these churches. So as we come to the text this morning, I want to consider three things. I want to first of all consider the reality and basis of the tension within the church because there is tension within this church. Secondly, the affectionate and principled response commanded. And then thirdly, the affectionate and principled response grounded or reasoned. So what you're to do and why you're to do it. But let's begin by considering the reality and basis of the tension within the church. Now, this is going to be a little bit of a history lesson, but you'll understand, I hope and trust, that that while there was a specific context, there are principles that are to be dealt with and worked out in every generation of the church. Now, I, I want to begin here by saying that history is, is always our friend when seeking to gain perspective on life and society. If you don't understand history, if you think, you know, this is the only time it's ever been this bad and things have never been worse, please, please pick up a history book and please read the sermons of pastors who have come before And particularly if those pastors have addressed whatever you regard to be the golden age of the church. Like if you could go back in time, when would you want to live? What era of church history would you want to live in? So Puritan, right? Let's all go back and go live. We're going to live among the... read Read their sermons. Read how they spoke to their congregation and read their understanding of the time in which we live. 
I believe that nothing will radicalize us more than fear. And if we can be made to believe that we're facing a crisis that's never been faced before, then we will abandon certain principles. We've seen that politically, and I believe it happens theologically as well. When we see that there have been tensions and divisions which threatened to destroy a church in the past, and particularly when that past is addressed with a perfect revelation from God, it can help us to see how we ought to respond in the present moment. Now, the division here may seem to us simple and almost quaint, and perhaps for some, foolish. But it sure didn't feel that way to them. And it would be interesting to know in a hundred years, someone could study the fights and the arguments of the church at this time, what might fall into that category as well. Now this tension, as I mentioned, arose due to the reality that God loved and was saving people from among the Gentiles and bringing them into the church. A church that was a mixed church. Now, had there been just Jewish churches and Gentile churches, we wouldn't have Romans 14. And the, the solution for some may simply have been, well, let's just have these different churches and let everybody live according to their own conscience. And we're not going to have this issue. God was forcing this issue. Because the perspectives given here are something that churches need in every generation, even if it's not rooted in quite the same historical reality. So let me just give you a little bit of background. Many of you are aware of it. Some may not be aware of what was going on. The church, as it began, you read Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, and and I know we can argue with the churches before that. I, I understand, I understand that there, that argument can be made. But let's call the New Testament church as it begins. Very often people will sign it there on the day of Pentecost. It begins and it is ethnically pure. It's Jewish. Now these Jews are from, had been scattered for decades and for different parts of the world and uh, had differences and you can read about some of that happened in Acts chapter 6 there were differences based upon what part of the country you came from or part of the world you came from whether you spoke uh, Hebrew whether you spoke Greek and there were tensions that came even with the Jews but this was a whole new tension and so the church as it began was Jewish to the Jew first also to the Greek Paul said in Romans chapter uh, Romans 1 and verse 16. Jesus gave that the we were to be witnesses, or his people were to be witnesses in Jerusalem, and then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jerusalem and Judea, essentially Jewish Samaria, what we might call half-breeds, uh, those who were Jew-Gentile uh, mixed marriages, but then ultimately to the uttermost parts of the world that is pure Gentiles. Well, you read the book of Acts and you find out that the day came when Gentiles, full-blown Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles, heard the gospel and responded. They believed in Jesus, they were baptized, and they got added to the church. Now, if you want a theological uh, commentary on that, read Ephesians 2 and 3. And there it's just, it's wonderful, it's glorious as Paul reveals that this is the unveiling of something that had essentially been hidden to so many in, in, in the past, but now God is making it known uh, of what he was doing with the Gentiles and making them all one and breaking down the middle wall of, part, uh, of, of partition and putting to death the enmity that was as a result of the ordinances and the laws and all of the rest. But now you've got to live together. Okay, so you get your theology, all right, you know, justification by faith, right, right, right. But at some point, you've got to live together and have fellowship with one another. And you've got to eat together. And so with this work of grace came some troubling practical adjustments 
that would need to be worked out and hammered out in, in light of one's theological understanding. And you recall in Acts 15, there had been a church council held with the apostles and elders from a variety of churches to discuss what had been the thing. I mean, they'd had Twitter back then or whatever you call it now. The number one trending, trending thing about Christians would be the Jerusalem council. And they're going to debate and discuss and give a decree on the question, do Gentiles need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved? That is, do they have to come from Gentiledom to Judaism to Christianity, or can they go from the death that they were in to life in Christ and bypass circumcision and bypass the dietary laws? You say, I don't care. What's that got? Nothing to do with me. Please follow along. I'm getting there. The church council is held to determine whether or not a Gentile could be saved by Jesus without first becoming a Jew. Must they follow the same process that we did? That's what the Jews were saying. Now again, you may have never asked that question. Maybe you don't really care. But this is where they are in history. They cared. And the answer was given in the Jerusalem Council and then expounded so beautifully in places like Romans that the Gentiles are saved by grace through faith and not by the keeping of the law. And just as radically for some, the answer was that's not just the way that the Gentiles are saved, that's the way the Jews are saved too. They're also saved by faith and by grace and not by the law. Now, this is still in the early days as they are working out the ramifications of this theology. Again, these things not only needed to be worked out doctrinally, but to some degree practically. It's one thing to say that we are all one in Christ. It's another to have it tested when we come to the practical application of truth. And we find out that you practice differently, think differently, and are persuaded differently than I am. And the question that's hitting here that they're dealing with is what about the dietary laws of Moses? Why were they given? And are they still in force? And if so, how and why? And what are they saying about us and our relationship with God? Now, what had happened here is this. Some having studied their Bible and theology where they were right now, they came to different conclusions. And then the question comes, how does this affect my relationship with someone who, having studied the same Bible, has come to a different conclusion? Now, when you become a Christian and you start studying the Bible, it sometimes shocks you and surprises you that Christians divide over stuff, right? You think to yourself, well, and how does that happen? Why does that happen? How how can it be that a Baptist and a Pado-Baptist praying to the same God, praying to the same Holy Spirit, with equal education, equal intelligence, study the Bible, hammer out the text, and come to such different conclusions, right? That happens. And the question comes right now, what do we do with that? And so, as I said, the question could have come, do we divide for the sake of peace? Just make it easier. Do we have a homogeneous congregation rooted now in dietary convictions, which for you, if you're particularly if you're Jewish, or on the side of you know, coming to that fact, as we'll see in a moment, you can only eat vegetables when you're at church, it really matters to you. You, you, you think you, might, you would be sinning, and you're questioning whether others are sinning also in their different conclusion. It's not just a different conviction. The question is, are they sinning? And if they are sinning, and, and you know, why do they differ from me? How come they can't see things the way that I do? And so the easy thing, again, would have been have a homogeneous congregation rooted in dietary convictions, which, again, for you really matter. Matter to the point where you don't know if you can have fellowship with someone who differs. Which puts it, this matter of food and drink, on the same plane as immorality and heresy. 
things over which you do divide a congregation. You put some out for those things. But what do you do when you have what is a disputable matter over which you have a very strong and and in your mind biblically based view? So for some, again, you're, you're having to deal with certain issues that you've never faced before. You're, you're in this church until the first Gentile came in. You never had to deal with it before. You know, every church, every potluck was kosher. And all of a sudden now you're about to eat something and you think, and you're saying, what's this cut? And, uh. Mr. Abramowitz says, what's this cut? And uh, John McLaughlin, the new guy at the church, you know, says, I got a great deal over at the temple. No, Jewish guy comes out of his mouth. Where did you say you got this? I got it. I got it at the temple. Or he says, starts to goes, that smells really good. What, What is that? Well, have you, have you never had bacon? <laughs> you mean from a pig? Yeah, swine, pig, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I call it pork, but yeah, but go ahead, what do you... And all of a sudden, there's an argument, and there's anger, and there's division, and there's judgment, and there's despising over what is on plate and again if you're a Jew you'd never had to face this in worship before nobody ever did brought anything that was anything different you never had to deal with this and now you do and for you if you're a Jew you're saying look there is a long line of biblical data that we can bring I've got chapter and verse God cares about what we eat his people have for hundreds of years been distinguished by how they look how they dress how we worship and how we eat It mattered to God, and it matters to me. And if you want to get a flavor of that, listen to Peter when the Lord gives him a vision of these animals coming down from heaven. He goes, hey, Peter, get up and rise and kill and and eat. And he says, not so, Lord. I've never done anything. He's saying that to a heavenly vision. The God of heaven is speaking to him in a vision, and he says, "Uh uh-uh. I'm not, he has a harder time with that than Abraham had with the, with the statement, take your son, your only son, and kill him. Okay. Eat pork. No way. And God says to him, do not call unclean what I call clean. Now, is, is God ultimately concerned so much with the food? No, he's, he's going to tell him to go to the house of a Gentile. And to preach the gospel to him, that's what all of that was leading to. But for the Jew, it mattered. But Jesus had pronounced all foods to be clean, showing that they were typological elements to these dietary laws. And so some said in the coming of the new covenant, this or that is allowable. We can eat what we eat in faith. It was unto the Lord, as as I read earlier, with a good conscience. And another says, well, I can't do that with a good conscience. I certainly cannot do that to the God who revealed himself through Moses. Eat what Moses said not to eat. And the other says, well, I can. Well, let's just have two different churches. Or let's cancel all fellowship meals. Or let's have alternate Jewish meal day, kosher meal day, and Gentile meal day or whatever the case might be all right so so far the text would argue so good look look look. There, there is a difference we could agree to differ you do what you do with a good conscience i'll follow my conscience and that's how we look at it right now isn't it we go right easy easy peasy But it's not so easy, is it? Especially if you've studied the issue out, as some had, and you begin to think, you not only differ from me, 
but you're sinning, you're sinning, and I don't know if I can have fellowship with you. It's altering how I see you. When I see you, I see meat or I see vegetables. I see kosher and non-kosher. I don't see you. I see your opinion or your practice, and that's all that I see. And for you to come to a conclusion that I simply cannot see, and in good conscience, I cannot do, is affecting how I see you. I'm right. I'm being principled. I'm carrying out the logical conclusion, which is, you're in sin, you are lesser than me. Now, these issues that are being dealt with, and we need to understand this, and this is actually part of the problem, are about what the text calls doubtful things. You see that in the text. It could be rendered disputations or matters of discernment. In some translations, it's a discussion of what are called scruples, or some modern translations say it's all about opinions. Now, we need to understand, not everything's a matter of opinion. There are matters of orthodoxy. There are matters that we say, look, this is part of what it means to be a Christian. But there are other matters where people have had a studied, this is part of the encouragement about this, you think through this and do what you do or don't do what you do is unto the Lord. But what are some modern equivalents of matters of disputation or doubtful things or matters of discernment or scruples? Allow me to dare to mention a few. Some of these, some of you, again, you realize if you're here and you're not a Christian or this first time among, you know, maybe you're in a, a Christian place where this has never been an issue. Some of us have been in, you know, fundamentalism or, or various other uh, uh, Pentecostalism or other things and some of this even in reform camp so alcohol the beverage use of alcohol whether somebody could have enjoy a beer to the glory of God when I went to seminary and I was being interviewed for seminary I, I came out of a teetotaling background uh, in my church in the school that I had uh, that I went to and we spent more time talking about this than anything else about whether I would have trouble with somebody in the church who could drink a beer to the glory of God. The use of tobacco. Well, cigarettes are, well, you know, well, what about my pipe? What about cigars? And where would reformed Christianity be today without alcohol and tobacco, right? I mean, those are the major, they're like the seven points of Calvinism now. <laughs> And I've struggled, you know, I won't get into what my views are on that, but I'm, I'm just telling you this is some, that's a real, that's a pro, that's really problematic. Movies and music. It should be a lot easier to being a Christian. You know, you just, I mean, there was, there was a general consensus about a lot of these kinds of things. Tattoos. I had a young person send me a text recently about getting my opinion on, on whether they should get a tattoo or not. 30 years ago, what are you talking about? Why, why would you even consider it? You don't do it. It's, it's, it's against scripture, and we, we could argue. For women, questions that have torn the churches, how long their hair should be, how to dress, whether they can wear slacks, makeup, head coverings, education of children, birth control, guns, the Civil War eschatology, certain forms of eschatology, certain aspects of how you work out God's law. And some of these things, as I said them, if I parked on some of them, some of these, you may have a very visceral reaction thinking, that's not up for debate, Jim. Christians, real Christians, serious-minded Christians don't differ on that. Well, good, if you're feeling that, good. That's where you ought to be because that's going to help you to understand this text. I could go on and on. The point of the text is not so much about solving the debatable issue. That's not Paul's concern. Paul's going to say, on the one hand, Paul's going to say, whether you eat or don't eat, as long as you do what you do is unto the Lord, I'm fine with it. Now, he is going to say, look, 
If all you eat is vegetables, you are weaker in faith. So sorry, all vegetarians. No, that's not, that's not really about vegetarianism. It's about most likely eating in church settings where you don't know where the food came from. And so you'd be safe. I'm just going to eat my potato. But Paul's current concern, again, is not about solving each and every one of these debatable issues and putting in your church constitution. His concern is not to argue the weak into a different position or to cause the strong to abandon all of their liberties. It's not his, you see, that would solve it, right? Look, just don't do it in front of them. Just, just maybe just don't even do it. You don't need to do it. Let's all just become vegetarians and let's just have a peaceful church. You know, we're going to have salad day at church with no proteins, okay? That might solve the problem. It might solve that problem, but what about all the others that will come? He's trying to get to our hearts. John Newton once says, what will it profit a man if he gains his cause and silences his adversary, if at the same time he loses that humble, tender frame of spirit in which the Lord delights and to which the promises of his presence is made? And all you care about is getting the change and you lose the very things God delights in. The concern we'll see again is not how we think about the issue, but how we, uh, how we think about and treat the one who differs. All right, I'm going to try to let's move on. The affectionate and principled response commanded. And Paul brings it out there in verse 1. Receive. Receive the one who is weak in the faith. And then, again, he's going to say, uh, let, he's going to talk about despising, and he's going to talk about judging. The exhortation is first addressed to the strong in regard to the weak. While both are tempted to judge the other, the strong are addressed first and told to receive the one who is weak. To receive. Full stop. Just receive them. Now, somebody says, yeah, I want to receive them because I want to straighten them out. But you see, that's not what he says. Receive them, not to disputations. You don't receive them so you can, you know, well, I'm going to have them over. And we're going to hash this out. No, just receive them. Not get close so you can change them, not so you can argue with them, but simply receive them. The term used here has the idea of full reception. Say idea of taking one in as a family member, taking them into your heart, and that would include into your home at times. The very place where the issues at hand might come into conflict. You might think, again, the best thing to do is only to relate to certain people in the church in a very minimal manner, avoid them, avoid any deep conversation, avoid any heartfelt contact so that we don't stir things up. But you've got to understand, you're not really going to be able to enjoy the fullness of fellowship and family without at some point eating and drinking. It's a whole other message. But here the primary issue, again, is relational. Now, does God ultimately care if you go to bed, or go to bed, sorry, go to heaven? <laughs> sorry, I'm really asleep. No, I'm not really asleep. Does God ultimately care? If we go to heaven with a belly full of venison or carrots. You think when you get to heaven, well, what, what was your last meal? Is God keto obsessed? No, he said, but he does care whether or not you love and receive one another. See, you see, again, you do not have to change your brother or sister in order to receive them. You don't necessarily have to change your opinion in order to receive them. You do not have to share convictions in order to have a heart of love. But you do need to see them rightly and love them well. This is not a suggestion. It's a command. And it's a present active imperative that is in the realm of perpetual obligation. Receive them. 
welcome them. They are more than what they have in their lunchbox. Do not so focus on what divides you. Focus, as we will see later, on who and what unites you. You have faith, and that faith allows you to eat all things. Your brother in good conscience, rooted in that same faith in Jesus, the same desire to please and honor God, eats only vegetables. And the temptation is, again, to treat the other, we read it here, with contempt. It's so easy, it's so natural, it's so human. And again, I joke, I jokingly said this, but when... when Brethren, I do struggle with this. Sometimes I have I have opinion I have views on certain things that I hold to so strongly. And I believe that I am right and I'm balanced and uh, and all of this and, and when somebody comes and says something differently, my first thought is, what an idiot. How can how can you be that stupid? How do you fall for that? How do you do that? God is not pleased with that attitude. To treat someone with contempt, again, it's very easy, it's very natural, you know, or even to say, that, look, oh, we oh boy, there you are again. You're, you're, you're pale full of vegetables. While all the rest of us are enjoying this rich food and fellowship together, oh, we got to think about you. You ruin everything. That can be the idea. The weak, however, says in his heart, and this is the vegetable, the only you, Gentile, or Johnny come lately, we're Jews. We have the law, and Moses told us what to do. Your so-called strength is rooted in paganism and in your selfishness. You only care about your belly and your taste buds and not the glory of God. You're a worldling, a compromiser. I'd rather eat my salad and go to heaven than be like you and risk judgment. So Paul says, verse 3, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who eats, who does not eat, judge him who eats. These terms are, are used here in regard to attitude. One despises, the other judges. And you see how that's worked out on both sides, right? The one who is strong despises has a view of contempt. You are so stupid, so ignorant, so uneducated, so unsophisticated. You backward fundy and legalist. When you hear about them, you find someone like-minded in order to have a good laugh and a good role. See the guy over there with the... See what they brought to the potluck? <laughs> yeah, uh, You know what they're like. You know, you get together and have a good little chat. When you hear of their convictions or scruples, it produces contempt. On the other side, you have a warning about judgment, and this will expand in the coming text to both sides. But there is a special tendency, again, for the vegetarian to be morally superior, to think the carnivore, the one who is careless about what kind of meat or where the meat came from, and hence they do what many do, they play it safe. You build a wall and a hedge around the table to protect yourself trying very hard not to be wrong and not to sin. All right, the principled response grounded or reasoned. When I have a strong conviction over a debated issue, why should I treat those who oppose that position with dignity, love, and respect and openness? Why should I receive him and eat with him? Well, here's the profound response of God's word. Because God receives him. Because what's on their plate is not a hindrance to God's heart, God's affection, and their standing in Christ before him. God has received him, welcomed him into the family. He sups with us. It's part of, there's a reason why the Lord's Supper is a meal. Because meals, food and drinks, symbolize fellowship between people who are uh, united to each other that, that don't have enmity. I mean, this could just be a sermon you preach every time, but there's a reason why you take and you hold and you eat and you put it in your mouth and you chew and you swallow. God is saying we have fellowship with each other and, and we're saying we have fellowship with one another despite whatever may divide us. The question comes, is he in Christ? Again, remember the issue here is not justification. 
or the importance. You know, again, we're not talking here about that. Well, they, they don't believe God is triune. It's not what they're talking about. It has to do with food laws. It's about issues that are, are within the realm of debate and discussion among Christians in the same church. Now, there are issues that will divide us. Even when we say that we believe that they are true Christians, there are issues that divide the body of Christ to the point where we cannot worship together consistently. Baptism and some other issues like that, that, that though we recognize are not a barrier to heaven, but we do say they do matter and they are important and we need to all come to our convictions on those. But there are issues that are so important to say, again, there are certain issues so important as to not be consistent with being a church, but there are other issues that believers will face as they work through the Christian life in any generation. And we need to think about, all right, how do we handle these things? And how do we handle the people that hold them? So what happens in some, what often happens, church divides or people avoid each other. That's the simplest thing, right? And, and some of you have done that. You just avoid each other. So I wish sometimes we were smaller so you couldn't. I'm going to you know, try to create some way you can't just get around each other. You don't like each other, or you disagree with each other, and it's so strong you can't really welcome and receive each other. It's not to be, Paul says. Paul says, you need to think about this. What is God's heart toward that one who differs from you? Now, what you're going to want to try to do is convince yourself, well, they're not really a Christian, and therefore, I can have this attitude. And Paul says, let's, let's think through what the issue is. But now ask yourself, what is God's heart toward that one who differs from you? Do you believe that despite your convictions that you are right and that the one who differs is wrong, do you believe that they are nonetheless in Christ? Do you? And if you say yes, it fundamentally alters the conversation. Do you believe that there are people to the right of you or to the left of you on some particular issue that God nonetheless loves and loves unfathomably. That he knows they only eat vegetables and they're they're not enjoying the fullness of the liberty that Christ has purchased and yet he loves them as much as the one who differs. If you're a teetotaler, do you believe that Jesus loves that one who can drink their alcohol to the glory of God in moderation? Not to drunkenness, but moderation. If you hate tobacco, can you believe that Jesus loves and receives the dude with his cigar as much as he receives your pure lungs and lips? I could go on and on. And this perspective is not just, again, about debatable issues. It's about all the walls and all the wedges that come to the body of Christ. You hurt me. You did this. You you did that. I don't like the way you handled that situation. It may not be a... You may not have a different opinion. You just don't like the way they did that. What's the heart of the Lord toward them? This is, this, is, this is how the Lord wants us to think. What's my heart toward them? Have I loved them with an everlasting love? Has Jesus borne their sin and their shame? Has he given to them the fullness of his righteousness? Will they enjoy a happiness undiluted at his right hand? And has he done so regardless of those things that offend you? And remember not just his love for them, but remember his love for you. This is Paul's argument that forces us in regard to how we view humanity in light of God's grace toward us. God's grace toward us. Remember, all of this begins, you live in light of the mercies of God. I beg you, brethren, live your life in light of God's mercy. I like to live my my life in light of God's wrath. Live Live your life in light of God's mercy. So he says, remind them, this is Titus 3. We could, if I could engrave this on everybody's heart and mind, I would. Remember, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves 
were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's our testimony. Our testimony is not, I was so smart, so moral, God saved me. I was so right that God had mercy on me. Listen, he loved you when you were a rebel, sin-loving, hate-driven idolater. He showed mercy to you when you were in the depths of your sin, when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, and not on the basis of anything that you did or would do. Did he send his son? While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. And that's, that fundamentally changes how I view everything and everyone. It's why my love can be patient and hopeful. It's why I can engage in a hostile enemy of God knowing, you know what, I would just like you. Why are you treating me this way? Why don't, you, why, why don't you just want to crush me? And, because, dude, I was where you are. And I believe that if God can open my eyes, he can open your eyes. If he can forgive my sins, he can forgive your sins. And when I look at others and I'm tempted to view them according to a standard that matters very much to me, I remind myself, here I stand by grace. And that's what we come here to celebrate in the body and blood broken and shed for us that we stand in the love and mercy and grace of a God who welcomes and receives us in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these moments together in your word, and we do pray that you would own and bless these things to your glory and for the good and upbuilding of the body of Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would lead us and guide us, shape our thinking and our affections according to your word and truth and actions. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.